It's the final Sustainable Futures Report of 2019, episode number 45. Yes, I'm Anthony Day, and this is the edition for Friday the 20th of December 2019. I'll be commenting on the British general election, although it won't take long. More important is the outcome of COP25, the UN Climate Conference in Madrid, where hard-fought negotiations struggled into extra time over the weekend. That's all for later. First, I have another interview for you. We've spoken many times in the Sustainable Futures Report about the causes of climate change and the measures needed to get them under control. The truth is that changes to our climate, the effects of global heating, are already embedded into global systems. And it's as important to be able to cope with them as it is to stop it getting worse. My guest Sarah Thunberg of Geospitza spoke to me about it. Well, first of all, uh, Sarah, thank you very much for agreeing to take part in the Sustainable Futures Report. Thank you very much for, for allowing me to participate. I'm very excited. Well, uh, what I'd like to start off with, um, now, as I understand it, you've been involved in emergency management and emergency planning for 10, 15 years, uh, yeah. dealing with all sorts of natural disasters. But I know you're going to stop me there because you're going to say there is no such thing as a natural disaster. Why do you say that? Indeed. Um, I believe and I think that the evidence is very clear that there are natural hazards, those weather phenomena or natural phenomena like earthquakes, volcanoes, um, cyclones. They happen, but the disaster happens when we have people and human development in the path of those naturally occurring phenomena. So to call them natural disasters obfuscates our very human responsibility for the disaster component. We, as human beings, actively choose to live, to build, to work, to play in highly vulnerable areas. And when there are big consequences where human development and natural hazards align, we call them natural disasters but I think it's a misnomer and I think it it makes it feel like we don't have any power in what's happening when really we did it. OK, so do you think we should be doing more in the way of risk assessment uh, in, in the broadest context? Absolutely. I think um, that we should be doing more in more even than doing risk assessment, I think there is value in putting the huge amounts of risk assessment data and risk identification data into action, into mitigation, into adaptation, into preparedness that um, I was talking to a colleague recently and, and she said, you know what, I feel like I'm living in, a, in an alarm state all the time. Fire alarms of, of some sort going off, whether it's uh, climate or global warming or flooding or pandemic influenza, that there's all these threats, but I don't really know what to do about them. And so I think that that's really one of the challenges we face is how we put all of this data and all of this risk into action to really reduce the risk. Right. A lot of this data, I think, comes from a wide range of, of public bodies. Uh, it would range, well, public bodies or bodies with responsibility to the public, ranging from the, the utilities like the power and the water, uh, the emergency uh, bodies like the fire and the police. Um, 
have you had any success in drawing these together and being able to actually consolidate the data so you've got a, a complete picture of, of a particular situation or, or, or so on? Yeah, absolutely. That's sort of um, been the root of my professional career is how we draw data and evidence from this huge, amazingly diverse set of partners together to make information products that help make important decisions or support important decisions. Um, yeah, that's where I've spent a lot of my work and, and the company that I co-founded, it's called Geospeza. That's the work that we do. Um, the academic universe, the government research universe, um, utilities, emergency managers, all of these parties create incredible data. But one of the challenges is that in an under-resourced, very stressed environment, like a disaster, an impending disaster, climate disaster, um, it's hard for people to stitch those together in a meaningful way. They come in disparate forms. They come from all over the internet, sometimes different languages, whether they're different computer languages or actual different languages. And it's hard to make meaning of them. And so there's huge value, I think, in, in doing that. And I think one of the best ways that's really exciting is that mapping technology has gotten so much better recently. And so um, taking zeros and ones of digital information and making really beautiful maps is, is a way that we can convey information powerfully. Do you find that all these different organizations are prepared to share the data with you or with some other uh, coordinator? Uh, and, and what about um, a GDPR? Is that uh, causing you problems as well? Uh, so the first part of the question is no. Of course, people are not necessarily prepared to share. I think people develop their data sets Sometimes I think you have sort of both things happen or a lot of things happen. It's sort of a spectrum. Some people don't want to share. They don't know how. It's hard work for them. Other people, I think especially academic and government researchers, um, they've done this with their life's work and they are excited to have it used. They don't necessarily know how. I think lots of times you um, get a little bit siloed. You get a little bit um, myopic because you're working on your own research and you think, oh, that, oh, there's a whole bunch of people who could use it. And that's exciting. Um, so I think there's a spectrum there. GDPR is interesting. Um, we have built our work to be fully GDPR compliant, um, to be aligned with that because we are building a global company at Geospeza and we believe that that's a place to start. But yes, I think that um, things like GDPR and in the, in the US, we have a law called HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability Privacy Act, maybe. Don't quote me on that, but it's HIPAA. It's about um, medical data privacy. And our experience is, even though that has pretty much nothing to do with what we do, people are always worried. They're like, oh, does this violate HIPAA? And I imagine uh, GDPR is similar. Does this, like, that, that a lack of knowledge makes people reserved and concerned. And so some better guidelines, some better ideas about how it really does apply in certain circumstances could be hugely powerful. But I think the, 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 Reservation is always conservative. People move conservative, and then you have to sort of pull them along. Right. Okay. Now, supposing you get all the local uh, organizations together, you manage to consolidate their information. 
is there then a question as who actually takes a lead and and takes the decisions based on the information that you've been able to consolidate? Absolutely. Um, and I think you end up in two different situations. One is sort of the emerging, unfolding disaster. Um, and then the other one is the longer range situation. What are we talking about five years, 10 years from now? And I think those parties can be really different. And the biggest challenge happens when those two pieces come together. So when we're talking about, for example, increased um, flooding as a result of climate change, climate change lives sort of with planning sometimes and flooding lives with emergency management. So how do you get those parties together mm -hmm. to be able to collaborate on mitigation and preparedness activities? It is, that is a huge challenge. Okay. Okay. Well, just assuming that you uh, you get uh, all the people talking together and you have this body of information and let's say a flood is forecast. What yeah. does this information management allow you to do that has been lacking in previous uh, national, uh, natural disasters? Oh, GSB's specific product and the work of our similar companies allows um, public safety entities um, corporations who have lots of uh, employees or customers in an area, anybody like that, to understand who, um, on a very granular geographic level, what the population looks like and what their needs might be. So might people, might there be a neighborhood that's likely to flood where there are a lot of people who rely on public transportation. So if we give them uh, an evacuation order, they're going to need some sort of support to get out. Or might there be a lot of people who rely on um, public support uh, in some sort of uh, food aid or um, rental aid. And so if we um, uh, need them to evacuate, we're also gonna have to provide some sort of food aid, something like that. And then the other piece is what infrastructure is in place in those geographies um, that, that we might want to uh, get back online most quickly. So is there a power station that we need to get or is there a, a key employer? And, and that becomes really relevant. Okay. Now, there's a wide range of disasters going on in the world at the moment. One of the mm -hmm. most notable one, of course, is the, these fires in eastern Australia, which have now got to the size of uh, Greater Sydney itself. Um, I don't know whether there's been planning. Um, I don't know that there hasn't been planning. But um, how would you approach something like that, particularly as we recognise that um, it is only spring in Australia at the moment? They haven't really started the fire season, so things yeah. could get worse. Where would you go from here? Yeah, it's a, it's like a deeply challenging set of problems and, and we experience it very similarly in the United States right now where um, what used to be a very defined fire season is no longer. Mm -hmm. Now we're dealing with it year long. Um, Australia's situation is unbelievable. Um, so I think that there's been some really interesting changes. One is that um, previous hesitation the, the sort of previous uh, planning strategy was that people were encouraged if they want or permitted if they wanted 
to stay and defend their houses. One of the things we know about fire behavior is that um, it's not actually the flames usually that cause the fire in a wildland fire situation. It's the sparks that move ahead um, and they settle and then it causes the fire to move very quickly. They fly on the wind and start the fires. It's not really the flames. So if you can have people who stay and defend their own homes and put out these um, advanced sparks and advanced sort of cinders, um, you can stop fire and you can you can build fire breaks. Uh, one of the very different situations that Australia is facing is that the fire is so big and so fast and the conditions are so dry, again, likely as a result of a changing climate, that they've encouraged people to leave, that they cannot, they don't, they don't want them to stay. The fires are moving too fast and they be, can become overwhelmed by them very quickly. I think this marks a really significant change in risk communication, which is public officials globally have been very bad at being honest about what might happen. And they have a tendency because they want, I believe they have a tendency because they want to be encouraging and they want to be supportive to not necessarily, or maybe they don't know because they're politicians and they're not, they don't want to believe it themselves. They don't effectively communicate the risk. Um, and that they don't use the data to communicate the risk. So I think this is a really interesting time and I'm excited to learn from it about Australia is really changing what they're telling people and they're telling people to leave and they're evacuating huge amounts of people um, to some economic loss, like all sorts of disruption happen when you, when you evacuate people. Um, so I think this is a really interesting time and I think it will be an example that we will draw from, from as we see this happen more and more, whether it's from flood or wildfire. Um, that we're just going to have to to move a lot more people around, and that is something we're not great at. How can we educate public officials? How can we, how can we change their attitude and make them more aware, and make them also aware of the opportunities of integrated planning through having a, a broad spectrum of data to to draw on? Yeah, um, I mean, I do. You, do you run training courses, for example? Absolutely, we run training courses. We advocate, we lobby. Um, I think conveying data is the best way that some well-designed maps in this world of well-designed infographics, getting some real evidence-based data in front of politicians to give them concisely and clearly what they're facing is the most effective strategy. And I think lots of times it's important to link it to the long-term um, growth or economic development component that I think most politicians feel the day-to-day -day pressure of ensuring their constituents are um, healthy, happy, and having economic expansion. And so if you can show them how these things play together, there is, there is huge value. Okay. And not to mention, I will, I'll add another thing, which yes. is hard to convey, but uh, natural hazards. In the United States, we say that um, in the emergency management community that snowstorms are mayor killers, um, that this relatively modest, regularly occurring event of a blizzard in the United States is the surest way to lose your job as a mayor because what seems like it should be very simple, which is snow clearance, is actually very expensive and very complicated. And 
Um, we've seen several mayors of large cities lose reelection or have to resign their office because they handled it very poorly. One of the best examples is Marion Barry, who was a, a, D a mayor of Washington, D.C., um, went to the NFL Pro Bowl in Hawaii when uh, there was a huge snowstorm in Washington, D.C., and he was seen on TV in this very warm weather when all of his constituents were stuck in their homes, and that was the end for him. And we've seen that happen in Boston and Chicago. Um, and so there is a very real implication of mishandling these natural hazards and natural events. Um, people depend on the government to deliver services, and, and politicians should be prepared to deliver on that or explain why they can't. And lots of times you can't. It's expensive and it's hard. And so being really transparent uh, is difficult. Okay. Well, it's expensive and it's hard, you say. And <laughs> yeah. as climate change, I mean, we are doing everything we can to stop climate change getting any worse, but we have built a certain amount of climate change into the systems. And right. We're already seeing more frequent, more intense, more violent storms. So there will be more and more natural yes. for, yes. for better word disasters natural hazards. yes natural hazards <laughs> that's the word yes yes um do you think that we are going to be able to upgrade um our emergency planning to cope with the challenges that climate change is inevitably going to bring us whatever we do about emissions uh over the next 10 20 50 years i don't know i am fairly disheartened at the moment, honestly. Um, I think that one of the biggest sort of heartbreaks I have is that the emergency planning and preparedness structures globally are very disparate. Um, and that you see everybody doing an okay job, some people doing a great job, but very few people doing an excellent job and those communities that are especially vulnerable to the hazards of climate change also having the least well-developed emergency management planning preparedness strategies. And I think a lot of um, like Ho, Ho Chi Minh City is a good example where new modeling shows that Ho Chi Minh City is going to experience far more flooding than we ever imagined. And sea level rise is going to happen way more quickly. And there's huge populations of um, not particularly affluent people who are going to need help. And we don't have a great system in Vietnam. Um, similarly, I think of the Gulf Coast of the United States, uh, where you have um, lots more cyclonic activity, lots more uh large uh, rainfall activities um, that cause flooding, um, all sorts of unprecedented events happening and not great. We're not very good at evacuation and we don't have a lot of tax base in those communities to support uh, perhaps buying people out and moving them other places. So it's a really big challenge. And I think also um, in lots of communities, but especially in the United States, we have a racially disparate emergency management system and a racially disparate uh, land use pattern where people of color and poor people live in highly vulnerable geographic areas and they're going to bear the disproportionate brunt. And I, I don't know what we do about that at the moment, but it's the part that feels hardest. 
Certainly some very challenging thoughts there. I think some yeah. of those issues, uh, particularly about the uh, less wealthy nations, are being brought up now at COP25 in Madrid. But uh, whether the actions are coming, we, we have yet to see. Uh, Sarah, tell us a little bit about your company. Yeah, so my company is called Geospiza. Um, we take our name from the genus of finch that Darwin studied on the Galapagos mm -hmm. to develop his theory of evolution. Mm -hmm. And we feel like it's our um, link to our mission of helping our customers adapt to a rapidly changing climate. Um, and we built, uh, we have built internet based platforms. So web platforms that ingest huge amounts of data, lots of it, this open data we were talking about, about risks and hazards and, uh, climate modeling and population based data around the world. And we visualize that in a really beautiful, uh, map based interface that allows all of this very complex, uh, disparate data to, to be understood in a very fast and very um, easy way. And then we build decision support tools. What we really care about is putting data into action um, to help make good evidence-based decisions. So we do a lot of adaptation pathway modeling, which is an academic uh, strategy for climate-based planning that, that comes out of the Netherlands, um, where you link the decisions you need to make to get to your end goal to the real-time data so you know when you need to change your strategy. So for example, do we need to elevate and when do we need to elevate? Because we can't do all of our climate adaptation and mitigation strategies at once. It's just too expensive. So how do we sequence them to get the best benefit? And we use machine learning and uh, a little bit of AI to help support those decisions. Well, thank you very much for that. We will put a link to your website on the blog, which accompanies the podcast. I'm going to put a link to your TEDx talk as well. Sarah, thank you very much for talking to the Sustainable Futures Report. Thank you for having me. Sarah Thunberg. Geospeza is at geospeza.us, which is G-E-O-S-P-I-Z or Z-A dot U-S. Uh, and I recommend that you look at her TEDx talk. You can search or find these links on the Sustainable Futures Report blog, which you'll remember is at sustainablefutures.report. And now to the election, Blues. Uh, no, I'm sorry. And now to the election. Blues won. Yes, we've just had a general election in the UK with an overwhelming victory for the Conservative Party. I'm disappointed with the result, mainly because I believe that Brexit will severely damage our country. This is not the forum to discuss politics, so I'll leave it there. The new government's policy on climate change will be crucial. Prime Minister Johnson refused to take part in a TV climate debate. This could be climate scepticism, or it could be simply part of his strategy to avoid the press wherever possible, which was evident throughout his campaign. Calling... Extinction Rebellion activists uncooperative crusties living in hemp-smelling tents, as he did back in October, does not bode well. As with everything else on the government's to-do list, we'll just have to wait and see. Far more important than Brexit, and far, far more important than the UK, is the climate crisis. So I shall continue to make that my principal focus in 2020. As you know, COP25, this year's United Nations Climate Conference, has come to an end. 
Scheduled to close on Friday the 13th, negotiations continued into the following Sunday and many are unhappy with the outcome. If the pledges made in Paris in 2015 are fulfilled, warming is likely to be held to around 3 degrees centigrade, far in excess of the 1.5 degrees centigrade, which is now believed to be the maximum that temperatures can be allowed to rise without causing catastrophic damage to agriculture and coastal cities amongst other things. Signatories to the Paris Accord agreed to report back in five years and present revised proposals for the future. Although a full five years will not have passed until next year, there were few signs that the major emitters have met their current commitments or have made much progress in establishing more realistic commitments for the future. Brazil, Australia, the US, China and other major emitters were all accused of holding up progress. I mentioned last time that they spent much time arguing over which words it was permissible to use in conference documentation. The US remains a party to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, the UNFCCC, even though it has withdrawn from the Paris Agreement, claiming it will damage the competitive position of the nation. Smaller nations set out their plans for reducing their emissions, but the effect of these will be dwarfed by the actions of China and the US, by far the largest emitters of greenhouse gases, who account for around 50% of the total between them. There were disagreements over carbon markets and the responsibility for assisting poorer nations already suffering the consequences of climate change, principally from sea level rise. It was generally agreed that the final agreement was an uneasy compromise, leaving much to be decided at COP26 in 12 months' time. Meanwhile, the BBC reports an article in Nature that describes how Greenland ice is melting seven times as fast as in the 1990s, with obvious consequences for sea levels. It's more than worrying that faced with an emergency that affects the very existence of humanity, world leaders can do no more than talk and defer decisions for one more of the ten years that some scientists say is all we've got left. In the Bank of England's Financial Stability Report published this week, Governor Mark Carney says, What we're looking for management at banks to do is to think through their strategy about their exposure to industries that could be increasingly and materially exposed to climate risks. And the question is, how resilient is your strategy if you are concentrating your lending in areas that will be potentially severely affected five, ten plus years out? Back in October, he was warning that firms ignoring the climate crisis would quite simply go bankrupt. Also this week, the bank published the 2021 Biennial Exploratory Scenario on the Financial Risks from Climate Change. This is a discussion paper and is open to comment from anyone until the 18th of March 2020. They say, The bank will use its 2021 Biennial Exploratory Scenario to explore the financial risks posed by climate change. The exercise will test the resilience of the current business models of the largest banks, insurers and the financial system to climate-related risks and therefore the scale of adjustment that will need to be undertaken in coming decades for the system to remain resilient. Conducting a climate stress test poses distinct challenges compared to conventional macrofinancial or insurance stress tests. To ensure it is effective in light of these challenges, 
the bank is using this discussion paper to consult relevant stakeholders on the design of the exercise. This includes financial firms, climate scientists, economists, other industry experts and informed stakeholder groups. Find out more and submit your own comments via the link on the Sustainable Futures Report blog. Mark Carney leaves his post as Governor of the Bank of England early in 2020 and will become a UN Special Envoy for Climate Action and Finance. He's clearly committed to the extent that he will receive no salary for this role. COP26 will take place in Glasgow at the end of next year. The UK's relationship with the UN FCCC and commitment to the Paris Agreement is through its membership of the EU. This, of course, starts to change as we enter our transition period towards Brexit in 2020. So the UK will presumably have to make its own commitment to the Paris Agreement as it prepares to host this crucial conference. And finally... We're close to the end of another Sustainable Futures report, the 45th and last for 2019. Do you remember that I asked for 100 words on what we should do in 2020? That will form the theme of the next episode, which will appear on the 3rd of January. Quite a lot of people have come back with ideas, including Carol Dance from Sydney, Australia. Thanks, Carol. I've got both your emails. There's still time just to add your own 100 words to what we should do next year. Drop me an email at mail at anthony-day.com as soon as you can. And if you want to record it on your phone and send that to me as well, well, so much the better. Ian Jarvis has sent me some more ideas, so we'll look at those next time as well. And that's it for now, for 2019. Enjoy your Christmas holiday. It's an ideal opportunity to catch up with all those Sustainable Futures reports you missed during the year. Thank you for supporting me as a patron. Thank you for listening. I'm Anthony Day. And remember, I don't just do podcasts. If you want a keynote speaker at your conference or a workshop leader to bring your team up to speed on what the climate crisis means for them and your organisation, you know where I am. Now taking bookings for February. And as has become my custom in this festive season, let's play out with something different. <laughs>